Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. The kids were being, t- the one thing they could know for sure, those are my blood relatives. Those yeah. were people I've come from. There's a history there and they were being cut off from that. That yeah. it was like probably a loss of dignity in some ways. Loss of dignity. and lo- this, the, the, I mean, I think I, what I've realized as I've gotten older is the importance of relationships. It's sort of one of the secrets of a, of a happy and successful life. Yeah. And we need to be very careful before we cut them off, terminate them. And while the law might drive for this vision of permanency and finality, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. And we need to be really, really cognizant and sensitive of that. Beyond the Collab Babble, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab Babble, keeping you motivated and focused through their challenges. Beyond the Collab Babble, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collab Babble podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, system improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is clinical professor of law, University of Michigan, Vivek Sankran. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Good afternoon, Vivek. How Good afternoon. Are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? Good. So uh, I usually just say, where are we recording today? Would you let the audience know? Absolutely. So we are in the Westin Hotel in Atlanta uh, at a meeting sponsored by Casey Family Programs on prevention, how to keep kids out of foster care. All right. So um, I just want to start by asking you, what does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you? Uh, it means uh, thinking outside the box and going beyond sort of what uh, we've been doing for years and years and getting the same results and trying to do things differently. All right. So t- can you tell the story of how you became the clinical, um, I'll make sure I get it right now, the clinical professor at the University of, University of Michigan Law School and a little bit just about your background and yeah, your legal totally. career. So I went to law school at the University of Michigan Law School, took the Child Advocacy Clinic and uh, discovered uh, then how much I loved working with kids in foster care and their families. Uh, So after law school, I went to DC, uh, started representing kids in foster care. Uh, Never thought in a million years I'd ever be a law school professor. Didn't go to law school for that. Um, But when the opportunity came to go back to the clinic that I took as a student and that was so influential in my life, um, I jumped at it, went back to Ann Arbor, uh, and have been there since 2005, directing our child advocacy clinic. We represent parents, kids, foster parents in trial court proceedings. And then about four years ago, I started an appellate clinic to represent parents whose rights have been terminated. And so now I do uh, both trial and appellate work, uh, and it's a dream job. I get to work with the smartest law students across the country who are great to work with because their optimism for change is just amazing and that they they don't feel constrained by history by what's happened in the past uh they're out there to go save the world and uh and it's infectious it's good to good to be around all right so um you started the detroit center for family advocacy and that's something i really would like you to just talk about a little bit more um recently in colorado as you know because you've you've been in and out of colorado doing different consulting work we've known each other for some time and in 2016, we, uh, we opened a statewide office of Respondent Parents Council. 
Um, and I know over the years of when we were planning to do that, I saw you present several times on your advocacy uh, center in Detroit, and it was very inspiring. So I was just wondering if you could just share what was it, um, what were some of the results and successes that you saw, and, and why was that a better collaborative approach for the parents and ultimately the families and community there in Detroit? Sure. For, for years and years when I was doing uh, child representation and parent representation, I was always frustrated that we were getting involved too late, that if only we had gotten involved to help the family earlier on, we could prevent the kid from being removed and all of the horrible consequences that removal inflicts on, on children. So the idea was if we could get families the assistance of a lawyer, a social worker, a parent advocate before a petition or a removal ever happens, can we, the hypothesis was that we could keep these kids um, out of the foster care system. And so after a couple of years of knocking on doors, begging grantor funders to, to fund the program, in 2009, we opened the doors for the Detroit Center for Family Advocacy. And the model was that, to give families who uh, had a finding of maltreatment against the, uh, against the parents, but it wasn't so severe that you needed to go in and remove the child. The idea was to give them uh, the multidisciplinary services to keep kids out of care. Uh, and in a three-year pilot of the project, um, it was a huge success. Okay. We had 110 kids served by the, uh, by the agency, uh, and not one of those kids entered foster care. And so it is a model that, like, to its core, I believe in. I think that there are far too many kids entering foster care and that we have to do much more to support them. And this is one way we could have done that. Sometimes I, I talk to judges and they, get a, they, may, they may show some skepticism and maybe they, they use the same phrase in Michigan, that a voluntary case and voluntary services for parents. Um, but it sounds like your model actually connected them with the legal, with the lawyer, somebody to help protect their rights and to help them take care of different types of maybe legal barriers that were in their life that were preventing them from being the parent that they, they needed to be. What, are, what were some of, the, uh, some of the legal services that, you know, maybe you weren't litigating in a dependency and neglect courtroom, but maybe you were helping them solve other legal problems? Can you just share with the audience what that was? Sure. So we, uh, so we did handle a, t a lot of collateral issues, so things like domestic violence. Uh, a situation where someone might need a protective order and a custody order to keep her family safe. Uh, it could be a landlord-tenant case with a landlord who wasn't uh, fixing repairs and making the repairs in the house that needed to be done. It could be a non-offending parent who needed a custody order or a paternity order. Uh, it could be a criminal warrant. I mean, the beauty of our model was that the attorneys would go wherever the legal issue was, and they were not constrained in any way, while the social worker and the parent advocate were guiding the parent through the process and also helping that parent access community services, but not just giving them a piece of paper and saying, go to you know, that class or go to that housing, but actually accompanying them, actually making sure the service was legit and something that was meaningful. And so my, you had started by saying judges have expressed some skepticism. My pushback to them would be that rarely have we actually offered families real services in the, in the pre-petition stage. And this was that. It was a real concrete service meeting the material needs of families. So in, the, in maybe the prior to your clinic or in the cases that your clinic, clinic was not taking, families might be given a piece of paper with a list of addresses and phone numbers and we, you need this service or this service, but no case management. Totally. No follow-up. Just kind of maybe... We'll, we'll come show up and, and check in on you in 30 or 60 or 90 days, but not the kind of support that 
it sounds like the families that you were encountering were in crisis and they needed someone to help them through this very maybe chaotic time and stressful time and traumatic, uh, maybe other traumatic events taking place in their life. What's striking about the foster care system is how little actual social work in the way that, you know, traditionally we define social work is actually done to help families. The concrete, you know, hand-holding, guiding, connecting. Um, when we do that, I think we really expose how capable many of our families are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the beauty of what I saw in the seven years that we existed was sort of seeing families flourish with the right combination of supports. So hand-holding, connecting, it sounds almost like we're going to build a relationship with you and find out what really is going yeah. on and not expect you to be able to communicate to us in the first meeting that you met us in sort of a high-stakes interaction of what you need, right? Absolutely. So our, our staff spent hours and hours working with clients, but also working with each other as a multidisciplinary team, thinking about different uh, insights that they each gained from their professional perspective about what the client needed. And so, you know, the attorney would be upset at times because a client might be, you know, frustrated. And the social worker would say, well, here's why they're frustrated. You're giving them an agreement and they struggle to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, The parent partner will say, uh, leave a meeting and and challenge the attorney saying that you have to stop using those legal acronyms in meetings because the client has no idea what you're talking about. That interdisciplinary, you can't, I mean, that you can't uh, rival that in terms of its quality. Like that combination there uh, really allowed us to figure out what the client needed. Okay. So you were building trust. And I think you might've said this earlier, but I know it, it, it was some a conversation I've had with you at some point in the past that if a family did come to your clinic and they qualified for the service, but they just wanted the Department of Human Services out of their life and to be left alone, that wasn't the, necessarily the profile of case that you were looking to take. You were looking for people that were actively interested in engaging in services and getting the help that you could offer them. Yeah. So we, we really made sure when we did our intakes, which is a pretty, uh, strenuous process that these were families that actually wanted to work with us because mm-hmm. uh, we were on a limited budget. We had, li- we had more demand than, um, than resources. And so we wanted to make sure that the families that we were taking on were families that really could benefit from our services. And not one of those cases ended up in a court in file. In a three-year pilot, not one of the cases ended up in a file. And part of it was the collaborative approach, was mm-hmm. the fact that we were working hand-in-hand with the CPS workers to try to keep these kids out of care. So at times that could be identifying a relative who could care for the child on the short term mm-hmm. while the family uh, resolved their issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was that, that, what I learned was that the pre-petition collaborative work um, is a game changer yeah. and that creating those conditions are huge. And the professional to professional trust and relationship started to build as well? Exactly. Okay. And so they, they, they understood, we all had the same objective, which is to keep the kids safely at home. And I think each role understood what they could contribute to help make that happen. So people really got to, I mean, I guess the reason they got into the business was to help families. They started to see that help. And it was probably energizing for the professionals to actually take a high risk case or a case that could, without this intervention, end up in a court setting and, and make a difference in people's lives. Totally. And it was inspiring me to see so many uh, workers at child welfare agencies who to their core wanted to keep kids at home. As somebody whose career was really based on representing families after removal, I got a really jaded view of what I thought workers were like. Mm. And this really educated me that we're all coming from the same place. place. If given the right circumstances. If given the right tools, circumstances, 
we all want the right, the same things for these families. Um, but you take away those tools. And for many of these workers, the only tool they are given is filing a petition because yeah. they don't have the real supports and the services available to help families. And so they want to keep kids safe. They often feel the need uh, to file that petition. Did you see any ripple effects? I mean, you weren't taking cases that weren't involved in court, but did the court find out about the clinic and some of the good outcomes that were being generated and at least try to replicate some of that for the cases that did end up in court? We, so we would get a lot of referrals directly from judges for cases after they came into the court system. Um, and it could be representing the non-custodial dad, helping him get a custody order. And so we would actually end up taking some of those cases as well. Um, there was a lot of energy and uh, interest um, courts because they were seeing that their caseloads were going down mm -hmm. because of the advocacy that we were doing. Yeah. And they probably had some comfort to know that parents did have a legal advocate and yeah. a voice and someone to help them navigate what are very often very difficult systems, even for the professionals to navigate. Absolutely. Right? I mean, the word voice is, a, is, a, is an important one in our field that if we could capture the voice of parents, of youth, uh, and at least allow them to be heard, yeah. we would go a long way to changing our, our system. You know, what's interesting to me also about this model is uh, it wasn't based on negative consequences. Um, in other words, just in, in entering a, an order and then uh, a sanction for noncompliance with that order and wondering why somebody's not changing their behavior, we know this our system's based on sort of the carrot and the stick, and we don't always see the change we want. And it sounds like you approached people truly with open arms to say, how can we help you? They didn't need the stick. They needed the help. They needed the carrot. They needed the service. That's actually right. And I think what we found was that our families genuinely wanted to create better lives for themselves mm -hmm. and for children. Um, they just didn't know how. And they and went back in a corner, but which is what often happens in a, in a typical case, they would react out of frustration. And here we sort of flip the script, trying to ask them to define what is it that they needed to flourish. Mm -hmm. And then our staff tried to figure out how to make that happen. So they didn't get stuck in that fight, flight, or flee type of mindset that we're, that we're programmed as human beings to kind of react if, if we're facing, of course, facing something that scares us, of something course. that triggers our trauma. You're able to get through to people. Well, that's really exciting. And you mentioned we're here in Atlanta at a meeting sponsored by Casey Family Programs, to talk about what is now about a year-old piece of federal legislation, the Family First and Prevention and Services Act, or Safety Act, sorry. And um, recently there was also a, like a, a policy clarification issued by the Children's Bureau, I think it was back in December, that indicated that now for a reimbursement for uh, services or administrative costs associated with legal services provided to children and families, parents and children, um, would be available, and I and I follow you on Twitter, and I saw your tweet that said this is this is a game changer, and so I wanted you to just if you could give your perspective on why you think this is a game changer. I think one thing I'll preface before you answer is we're learning a lot today in this meeting that nothing's going to be a simple, straightforward, black and white answer to the problem. But the fact that they've opened some funding up and there's access now, and and I think you made a point in the session today that. The first state that figures out how to get that reimbursement and gets that check into the, the office of the attorney, the office of respondent counsel, office of children's representative, is really going to blaze the path for the rest of us. We're going to know that it can happen. So why is this a game changer, even just beyond the money? Money is important, but why do you see this as a game changer? So I think there are three reasons why it's a game changer. One is, and you pointed out the money. The money is important. It's an under-resourced field. 
states have been unwilling uh, or reluctant to spend more of their money on this. And so to get a federal match of any amount, uh, I think it helps uh, get the juices flowing for creative ways to use that. Two is that it sparked a conversation, right? We are here at a meeting now of Supreme Court justices, of court improvement directors, talking about legal representation sponsored by a national foundation. I'm not sure that conversation happens uh, without this change. And um, this conversation is happening all across America in states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's been a spark. Third is that the conversation is not just amongst the legal community, but in order to get this match, it requires the legal community to reach out to child welfare agencies, which actually in and of itself is almost a game changer because it gets us out of our silos and forces us convince the agency that this is important work to do. And so because of the, the, and I think all of those things have intrinsic values that getting you know, our agency to recognize why parents need a voice through a lawyer yeah. in and of itself is a win. Yeah. And so some people might say, and I heard it today, why would the department, why would they want to provide funding to, you know, in an adversarial system, the parties that might oppose them and file motions and have contestant hearings? And I think that's something that a lot of times people would maybe logically think because, well, you get more attorneys involved earlier on, it might make it more difficult, but your clinic proved it actually made it easier and it it avoided court and it avoided the state having to spend money um, to represent parents in court, which is probably cheaper to go and deal with some of the ancillary cases that are out there, get the landlord-tenant thing uh, resolved. So... What do you say to that when somebody goes, well, Vivek, why would I want to give you money to, yeah. to, to, to defend parents who are clearly abusing their children? So I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. First, child welfare is an interesting beast in that the agency's goal is the same as that of the birth parent, which is to safely keep a kid at home or to minimize out-of-home care. That's like under federal law, state laws. It's a, it's a weird civil suit that's not really meant to be adversarial. Second. Um, if you look at outcomes, the outcomes that child welfare agencies want, shortened permanency, client engagement, uh, accessing services, these are all things that have been proven to be uh, sort of assisted by strong legal representation. Third, weak and inadequate legal representation does the exact opposite, which is the agency can come up with any plan, any new program, any intervention that a bad lawyer in court can... Um, uh, can get in the way of, can you know, ruin a, 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 a team decision-making agreement. Um, we're going to be hindrances. Bad legal representation hinders good outcomes for a system. Um, and finally, there's a cost savings element, which is that foster care is a very costly intervention. We talk about being a cash-starved system all the time. Good legal representation, even by reducing a fraction of kids who need to come into care, uh, can then allow the agency to reinvest in meaningful services to the families that actually need the protection of the foster care system. So I think it comes down to justice for families, just the right thing to do. If we were in this situation, what system would we want for each of our own if my kids were removed from me? And that would be strong legal representation. Mm -hmm. Two is outcomes for children. If we know of an intervention that produces good outcomes for children, why would we not invest in it? And three is cost savings, yeah. which is if we know that, that that thing produces good outcomes and can save you a significant amount of money, 
then that gives you one additional reason to invest in it. Yeah. Now for courts who have, for the most part, and it's the consensus here this week at the meeting, very busy dockets. So we're all concerned about that. We divert some cases from the court. We're still going to have, I would imagine, a population of cases where maybe court-ordered treatment and judicial support and having a team of multidisciplinary team put around a family in a court setting still might be necessary. Uh, would would you do you see that as as maybe this is an opportunity to give those families the kind of attention they might need Absolutely. when they end up in court? So everything that I'm saying right now in terms of the value of legal representation applies even after a petition uh, is filed, and there's strong evidence even after a petition is filed that cases are heard more quickly, resolved more quickly. Um, Washington State has a lot of good research on increased reunifications. But interestingly, they even saw an increase in their rates of adoption and guardianship with strong representation for parents. And to anybody who's done good work on behalf of parents, it's easy to predict why, which is client counseling plays a big role. Mm. We all have clients who, because of life circumstances, can't care for children. And rather than litigating sort of a, a unnecessary termination trial, doing a lot of client counseling, maybe working out some post-adoption agreements or contact working out a guardianship with a relative, all is, are roles that good attorneys play. Okay. So, so some of the negative outcomes that we are seeing, not just in Michigan or Colorado, but across the country, um, can be changed if we change the way this system functions and operates. And Absolutely. legal And legal representation is really a starting, like one of those starting points, pre-filing and then after filing, quality right. legal representation. I think that's absolutely right. I don't think as a system we will ever succeed in engaging parents and youth to work with courts and child welfare agencies until we give them a lawyer. A lawyer? And not just a lawyer, a good lawyer. And a team, maybe. The, a the team. social worker model, the, the, parent, the parent, we know the parent advocate model works. Right. Family treatment drug courts do that all the time. It's the game, it, that's the game, it's, one of the game changers there. It's totally the game changer. And until we do that, though, we can try all the engagement strategies, mm -hmm. all the different teaming models. Mm -hmm. um, and my own belief is that none of that will ever be effective because you need someone who, is, who has earned the trust of the client, who can give the client the real advice on how to engage and who to engage yeah. with. And until they do that, I mean, think about ourselves. We would, each of us would resist any sort of intervention unless we had somebody there who we trusted to advocate for us. Do you think, and, and this might get into a field that maybe you don't feel comfortable talking about, but is it really the compassion and the, sort of the time taken to connect with the client that your center did and that you see in the models around the country with good parent representation that makes the difference? Not to say that uh, psychotropic medication or individual therapy aren't important and don't have a place and some cognitive behavioral therapy, but for folks who are having a tough go at it in life, just having a real supportive real human being that's there, they could pick up the phone and, and say, I need some help. What, what, how can you help me? Whether it's talking them through a tough moment or helping them get a service. Do you think that is maybe, it, it seems kind of maybe too easy to be true, but pe human beings need to feel connected to other human beings that care about them. And that's a starting point. I think that that is exactly right. I think it's compassion. I think it's dignity. I think it is recognizing the humanity in each of our clients. But I think at its core where our system has failed is we view and treat individuals who've gone through hell and then some in a way that doesn't uh, uphold their dignity. That I, I mean, that one of the words I, I have etched in my mind is a parent saying that overnight 
She lost her job, her children, her housing, and her dignity. Wow. And you think about that, and that really hits home, that, that every intervention that we uh, do in child welfare that, we, that, that will make a difference has got to address that dignity piece, that yeah. how do we treat and it? And I think at its core, giving someone a trusted advocate to stand by their side, to help them navigate the process is the first step in recognizing that you are an individual, you are an individual worth something, that we're going to honor you as a, as, a, as a person, and we want to hear from you. Yeah. And the way we want to hear from you is by giving you somebody who is trained to really speak on your behalf. That's powerful. I, I usually ask folks, well, first let me just say, is there anything that I didn't ask you today? Is there any points or any story that you'd like to share that you just didn't have a chance to yet? And I, you know, I just want to like reaffirm and just say you know, that this is, uh, to the listeners out there, as important of an issue in child welfare as, as any other, and that the situation, maybe not as in Colorado, but across the country is pretty dire, that there are families that are struggling to be heard by our systems. And until we address that, we will continue to get poor outcomes in child welfare. And I, I can't say that um, enough times. And so that's, there's one takeaway, that would be it. Okay. Well, I usually ask you of three takeaways for taking action, but one takeaway, if that's the one big takeaway, we can, we can move on from, from that. I think that's a really important one. Um, last thing I do, getting to know the guests. I want yeah. people to have a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Um, what surprised you about this podcast today? Uh, I think what surprised me about the podcast is it's sort of focus on reform and pushing the envelope. And I think also getting into the conversation about dignity and compassion, um, because not, well, we don't talk about that a lot yeah. in child welfare. We talk about lots of data and empirical models and lots, you know, lots of really nuancy technical mm -hmm. stuff. But I think we overcomplicate things. And yeah. I think at its core, people want to be heard. We each want to be heard. Yeah. Um, it's about things like dignity, relationships. And so I'm glad we got into that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, what's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? Oh man, we don't have, that's like a whole nother podcast because <laughs> it's one of my favorite states. Okay. So I, you know, we, uh, my family and I, we all went to Colorado last year. We hit, uh, Glenwood Springs, uh, went, you know, in the, the hot pools. We went to the amusement park on the top of the, uh, of the, of the mountain. Uh, whitewater rafting uh, near Breckenridge. Uh, we went, um, you know, on a big uh, bridge across a gorge. I think it's called Royal Gorge. Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I could, I, Pikes Peak was great. Did they, a really big road trip, it sounds like. Yeah, a huge road trip. Uh, the best donuts we've ever had in our lives were at the top of Pikes Peak. It was freezing outside. We get in and these warm donuts are awaiting us. Oh, that sounds And great. it just sort of melts. And so... We're actually coming back again this summer. Okay. Uh, Going to hit Rocky Mountain National Park uh, en route to South Dakota and some oh, other places. Yeah. So Sounds yeah. like a great trip coming it, up. Yep, absolutely. Where's somewhere in the world you dream of visiting one day? Uh, so South America. Okay. So I've never been to South America. I'd love to go to Chile, um, Brazil, you know, anywhere yeah. in that area. I haven't been either. That's like next on my list. What's your perfect meal? Oh, my perfect meal. Uh, so I love Indian food. So, it, you know, it, it probably is a meal eating South Indian food uh, at a home in New Jersey with my mom cooking. Okay. And does your mom make it very spicy? She makes it very spicy <laughs> uh, and it hits the spot but, for me. All right. Uh, my last question for you is what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Uh, 
So it actually relates to our work, that when I was in law school, I never thought about uh, parents and about the importance of birth parents in the lives of children in foster care. And I had adopted almost a child-saving mentality that I'm here to get kids uh, adopted, get them out of foster care. And when I saw, when I was representing kids in D.C. and I saw the relationships they were having with uh, their birth parents, I realized that there are so many valuable aspects of that relationship that need to be preserved, fought for, and were not being seen by many of the players. And that completely changed my life's work, my focus, uh, and I feel like I'm a better person because I realized that. Yeah. Just a little follow-up on that. Um, Something I've thought about myself sometimes is uh, we maybe always are trying to figure out who we are as people, but the one thing that most of us do know is who our family is, and we can kind of connect to that, and we know we have some lineage. And is was part of that that the kids were being t- well, the one thing they could know for sure those are my blood relatives yeah. those are people I've come from there's a history there and they were being cut off from that that yeah. it was like probably a loss of dignity in some ways loss of dignity and lo- this, the, the, I mean I think I, what I've realized as I've gotten older is the importance of relationships mm-hmm. it's sort of one of the secrets of a of a happy and successful life yeah and we need to be very careful before we cut them off terminate them. And while the law might drive for this vision of permanency and finality, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. And we need to be really, really cognizant and sensitive of that. And maybe you can't always replace something that you cut out. Correct. All right. Well, that's it. I, I really want to thank you again for being, you're my fourth guest that's outside of the Colorado Judicial Department. This is a very timely podcast on a very important law that we're discussing in the state. And uh, maybe sometime I can ask you back when, when we learn more. How's I that lo- sound? Love that, Bill. All right. Thanks All right. for that. Take care. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, 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 learn, take action.